The Swithin, Book 2, Episode 12. Welcome to The Swithin. Greetings, folks. This is Scott Tellick, your friendly neighborhood Arthurian author of The Swithin, the series that retells the real legend of King Arthur and Associates in a series of epic fantasy novels and this very podcast. We're going to continue listening to book two, The Sons of Constance, but just remember, if you get tired of listening over several weeks, the entire book is available right now as an ebook and paperback at Amazon and various other online retailers, and the audiobook will be available very soon over at Audible. Actually, book three, which takes us up to the birth of Arthur, is going to be out very soon. And if you don't mind reading it on a Kindle or other electronic device, you can get it right now for a dollar. You can pre-order it where it'll be three dollars once it's actually officially released by December 1st. Uh, You can also keep up with all the shocking developments of The Swithin by finding The Swithin on Facebook, Twitter, and our website. Just search for The Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N. Okay, now today's episode includes a little bit of action and combat, so that's fun, and it's combat against a notable Saxon. And you might be wondering, who are these Saxons we keep hearing about? Saxons were a real thing, right? And even if you're not wondering, I'm going to tell you. Yes, the Saxons were a real thing, but let's piece it all together. This is one of those areas where the Arthurian legend refers to real history, although it's not very historical itself. And you remember that there is no one Arthurian legend. It was a story that was added to piecemeal. So Lancelot, the Holy Grail, all that stuff was added on later. And that stuff was added in the 1400s. And this stuff we're hearing right now was written 300 years earlier in the 1100s. So this right here is really the oldest part of the story. And, you know, even to say it was written is misleading because it was mostly a spoken word storytelling thing. So that's why I keep saying that these are actual legends in the true sense of the word, not, you know, the Zack Snyder sense. Anyway, so in reality, from the years 40 to 410, the Romans held Britain as part of their empire. Then the Romans left, and this part of the story takes place 40 years later, when rule of the country is still up for grabs. And the Saxons, who came from Germanic countries, made big efforts to take Britain for their own, and very nearly did. So if you think of a legend as referring to the real events that were going on at the time, what was going on right then was these invasions by the Saxons. And you'll see that the remainder of this book and the next several novels in the series, up to about book eight or so, are going to involve repelling the Saxons, and that the whole early part of King Arthur's reign has to do with vanquishing the Saxons and finally claiming Britain. So initially, the Arthurian legend was all about Arthur as this military leader vanquishing the Saxons. Then, in the 1400s, the French started writing Arthurian stories, and they invented the character of Lancelot and the love triangle with Guinevere, but those were all written as separate stories. Then the church saw that everyone was reading all these super violent stories because they were sort of the comic books of their day, very popular at the masses, and they decided to take it and cram it all into a religious context to make sense of all the violence going on. And so they added the Holy Grail and tried somewhat desperately to twist this whole thing into a religious parable. So then in 
1485, Thomas Mallory took all these separate stories that were never written as one continuous saga and never really intended to be one continuous story, and he crammed them all together into one story, and that is La Morte d'Arthur. And that's why we think of them as one big, long saga now, even though it was originally multiple different stories. But they've been one long story for 500 years now, and that's the way we think of them. Anyway, because of that, when you consider the saga as a whole, it gives it a big historical sense, which wasn't actually intended, but is how it came out when you put all these separate stories together. So now if we look at the entire thing from where we are now, before Arthur's birth, and going 60 years from now until his death, it looks like the first part is all about kicking the Saxons out and reclaiming Britain for the British. Then the second part is about all their adventures and the forming of Camelot and the Knights of the Round Table. But in the background, Arthur is instituting laws and making the country as a whole more stable. Then they go on the quest for the Holy Grail, and that's about how Christianity takes over and drives out the pagans, and how the time of one god replaces the time of many gods. And you'll notice as the saga continues, there's less and less magic. So that goes along with this idea of everything moving toward Christianity and one god taking over. So although these stories were never intended to be one long narrative, when you place them sequentially, they by accident form a big overarching story in spite of themselves. Now, one of my goals with this series is to unite the stories even more and make them more cohesive together and consistent. And that's why we started when we did and the Christianity and the sense of the Christian God taking over and wiping out the pagan beliefs is much more an elephant of my story from the beginning. And in my version, it won't be just an accident, but the entire thing is going to reframe the King Arthur story as hapless humans at the ponds in a war of the gods. And, amazingly, you can do that while remaining completely faithful to the materials of the old legends. All right, so that was long, but riveting, I'm sure you'll agree. So now let's get into today's chapters of the story. Part 2, Chapter 21. The messengers rode back for many days until they came to the place where the king had his army, their tents arranged in a clearing among the trees and stones of the forest near the castle stronghold, where Hanks was holed up with his remaining Saxons. Pendragon saw the messengers as they rode in among the tents and moved right away, reaching them as they were dismounting their horses. "'Did you find who you went to look for?' he asked. "'Yes and no,' said the lead messenger. "'But something very strange happened to us. "'Gather those who advise you about the seer, for they'll be better able to understand our news, and we'll tell you everything.' The men required were gathered in the king's pavilion, and the messengers told of the strange words of the woodsmen, and asked after the king's advisers, saying that the woodsmen told them they would find two of them had died. They are indeed dead, said one of them, one in a raid and the other to illness. The king heard this and stared at the messengers, pulling on his thick beard. His mind was afire with the advantages that a great seer could offer him in driving out the Saxon holdouts. The woodsman also told us, said the lead messenger, that the king would not succeed in taking the castle until Hangst was dead. King Pendragon stood, eyes lighting up at this. He knew about Hangst? He named him, said one of the messengers, without our first mentioning him. The other messengers nodded. The king hung still, visibly thinking for a moment. Then his arm came up quickly in a gesture of triumph. He turned away and was in a moment of private reverie before he once more faced them and said, I must know this Merlin. Sir Brantius stepped forward and began, My lord, he tells us words we would like to hear, and this is someone we do not know. 
He was ignored. Sir, said Roldan, I believe it must truly be Merlin himself who said these things. Only he could have known about the two who have died, and none but Merlin would be so bold as to mention Hank's death. He said that if you wish to know him, the messenger told the king, you yourself should come to Northumberland. Pendragon stepped right by Brantius's upraised finger, somehow enchanted that this seer already knew he was looking for him. He thought, somehow, that this man out there knew him already, and he had the hint that, in some small way, some distant shred of feeling, he knew Merlin, too. With his eyes focused thoughtfully and the slightest tickled smile on his face, he raised a hand to summon some footmen. I will ride out tomorrow morning for Northumberland, he said, and they went away immediately to prepare his horses. The friendship of this Merlin could be the making of us. The next day, the king rode out with several of his best men, leaving Uther in charge of the siege against Hengst. In a few days, he made camp on the edge of the great Northumberland forest. One of the king's knights was out hunting for their meal that night when he came upon a very frail and misshapen old man tending a herd of cattle. Greetings, worthy knight, the old man said. As to you, said the knight, who did not want to be distracted from his hunt. Fine day and luck with your herd, he said, already spurring his horse to be on his way. Oh, they're not mine, said the old man. They belong to a man who employs me, he said to the retreating knight. He told me that the king would come looking for him in the woods today. Hearing this, the knight stopped. He pulled on his reins and turned, ambling back to the old man. It is true that the king is looking to speak with someone in these woods, said the knight. Can you say on this man who employs you? Oh, I could say things to the king that I could not say to you, responded the old shepherd. Then come with me, laughed the knight, and I'll take you to where he is. The old man put his thin arms on his hips and scoffed. What kind of shepherd would I be then, he said, besides, and waved his bony hand as he began to walk away. I have no need of the king, but if the king were to come to me, I would tell him right away where to find the man he seeks. Then I will bring him to you, said the knight, and spurred his horse away. When the king heard all this, he rose from his seat at once and said, Let us go to him immediately. They found the old shepherd deep in the woody shades of the forest, and the knight pointed him out to the king. Pendragon's eyes fell upon the weak-looking old man and wondered if this could possibly be the one he was seeking. "'Noble king,' said the withered old man, "'you honor me with your presence. I know for the truth that you seek Merlin, but you'll never find him until he himself wills it. But if you were to take residence in the town, which is very near to here, he would come and speak to you.' The king checked an impulse of impatience, for he'd hoped to have spoken to Merlin that day, but he made a show of gratefulness, and the wizard noticed and was pleased. "'How do I know that you're advising me truly?' the king asked in a gentle tone. "'It's foolishness to heed bad advice,' said the old man. "'Therefore, if you do not believe me, do nothing. But wit you well, I give you advice of more value than you could get from anyone else.' The king smiled and looked in pleased wonderment at the old man, for he'd just begun to notice a certain amused twinkle about the shepherd's wrinkled eyes that accorded with the pleasant, tickled feeling he got when he thought about Merlin. Then, he said with an amused smile, I will believe you, and he spurred his horse away. Part 2, Chapter 22 Uther stood near the outskirts of the tents, away from most of his men. The night was breezy and fair, with a rich blue sky of stars such as we would not believe, for no one alive now has ever seen a sky so clear as they were then. The surrounding trees and distant hilltops made silhouettes against the endless blue, with the castle where Hanks and his armies were holed up, forming a massive shadow looming over all, lit here and there by distant torches. 
That and the fire scattered among the tents made the place, despite being a necessity of war, quite beautiful. There was a quiet peace over the entire encampment, with the faraway sounds of a few men singing as the sparks of the fires floated up into the sky, all of it quite serene and magical. It brought Uther's mind back to a maiden he'd known in Brittany, where he and his brother had hid out during Vortiger's reign. He knew his mind should be ever on war, but how could it? That was always Uther's problem, keeping his mind off the maidens. He was known as a dog for it. With such a beautiful evening, he could not help but want to spend it with the lovely one he thought of, to point out to her the magical sight of the sparks floating up into the silent trees, whose low boughs were illuminated by flickering firelight. He was so tired of the endless fighting, which had gone on now for months without one day's relief, and when he had a quiet moment to let his mind drift to more pleasant matters, he felt he deserved it. Worse still, he had no idea when he might see her again. In fact, there were no plans at all, and she was back there across the sea and married. They had enjoyed a brief, hot affair, the deception involved in which somehow made it that much more exciting. There were things he'd wished he'd told her, things that, in thinking of her, he'd realized only after leaving that he wished she would know. If only he could have even a word from her, but that was impossible. Fearsome Uther, rang a loud voice at his side, and he turned to see a small, frail old man clad in a peasant's robe, with a face so shriveled and wrinkled he was amazed that such a booming sound had emerged from it. The old man raised a hand and gestured to the night sky, saying, The night is peaceful and quiet, and it hides Hengst as he moves through this very camp, intending to take your life. Uther looked at the old man, and it took a second for him to register what he'd just heard. Jarred, he straightened suddenly. Hengst is here? he asked. Who are you? That matters not, said the man. What matters is that you be on your guard and carry arms and armor. He comes to slay you in your tent. Uther stared, mouth agape, at the man. What? Who are you? What are you doing in the middle of this camp? The old man raised his arm, and a bony, gnarled hand emerged from his robe, with finger pointed directly at Uther. There's no time to waste on questions of no importance. Hengst is on the edges of your camp, stealing in to meet you. Greet him well. Then the old peasant turned suddenly and was lost in the night before Uther could think to say a word more. He stood in the silence left in his wake and thought on what he should do. It was too bizarre what the man said. And how should he know the name of Hengst? How should he have any information about where Hengst was? He looked over where the man had disappeared to, then turned away to once more overlook the campsite, shaking his head in wonderment. Who were these people you came across when camping in these strange small towns? It was hard to imagine anything so dire happening on such a quiet, peaceful night, and his mind returned once more to thoughts of that lovely woman he'd left behind. Yet... What a perfect night to steal into a camp and kill a leader, unnoticed and undercover. It was a devious plan, and audacious, perfect in its simplicity. No armies, no battle, just slip in and take out the leader, leaving the army adrift. Uther thought on it further. Diabolical. If he were killed, it would take days before Pendragon was back, during which time his army could be heavily diminished, if not outright destroyed, especially if surprised and leaderless. His men were smart, all self-sufficient knights, but he'd seen even great men lose focus without a leader, and groups of knights with no coordinated plan were easily enough separated and picked off. Uther scratched his beard as he looked back toward the where the man had disappeared. It was too strange to believe, and yet, perhaps exactly so strange that he should believe it? There was no harm in donning his armor, and none in arming himself. 
and maybe even finding a perch from which he could observe his own pavilion. He was already moving toward the tents that housed the armor while still only half convinced. He stole in with a finger over his lips to the man sitting guard and emerged a moment later in a hauberk, strapping a sword around himself and carrying a long dagger with a blade of just about eight inches and helmet in his hand. Something afoot? asked the guard there. Just being sure, said Uther. Stay here and think nothing of it. In a moment, he'd moved off into the night. As he walked, Uther's nerves came out of relaxation and into the heightened awareness and coiled nerves that came with battle. His step quickened and became more stealthy as he picked his way through the tents toward his pavilion, beginning to orient himself toward spotting threats. His eyes avoided looking directly at any of the fires so he could retain his ability to see in the darkness. As he approached, he searched for some way to get up high so that he could have a view of his pavilion and all that approached. That is, without making himself obvious, sticking up above the line of tents like a fool. There was a tree nearby, but it wasn't very large, and he might be obvious to anyone looking at it, but he took the risk. Hangst, were he coming, would be too focused on finding his pavilion and picking his way among the tents unnoticed. Uther climbed up and took a seat in the lowest branch that could support him. He looked down and almost laughed. The iron rings of the hauberk shone brightly in the firelight, but he hoped that Hanks would be too occupied to notice. He was far away enough from the pavilion anyway. He sat long enough in that tree that he started to feel like an idiot. The encampment was as quiet as ever, most of the men lying asleep to refresh themselves for another round of besieging Hanks' stronghold the next day. A small group of drinkers were heard singing in the distance over on the far edge of the camp. Uther's mind started to drift off to how a small man could possibly have wandered that far into the camp unnoticed, and what he or anyone might have to gain by having him armed and waiting in his own tent when his eyes caught a glimpse of something moving in the darkness. Uther gripped the tree tighter and stared out into the darkness when he saw the movement again, and yes, it was a man. The figure was clad entirely in black and moved about the tents to avoid the light of the fires. He moved with stealth, waiting now as two men passed, crossing just behind them, standing momentarily on a stone, looking about for the pavilion, then stepping down without a sound and moving swiftly across several rows and turning rightward. He drew ever closer to Uther's pavilion. There was something in his hand. It flashed once in the light of the torches and fires. A dagger. A light tingling surged up Uther's body, the feeling akin to delight that often came with battle, and with a silent motion he swung his leg up over the branch and dropped to the ground with a thud. He was hardly upright before he stepped stealthily around to the side of the nearby tents, plodding out a circular route to intercept the intruder. Where should he meet him? Among the tents? Outside his pavilion? In the pavilion. His mind clicked through each different scenario with his varied advantages and drawbacks. Uther drew his dagger as he walked, and the adrenaline surged through his limbs as he began to feel his strides becoming quicker, more purposeful, and his movements drew into greater sleekness as his mind calmed into the eerie, heightened focus that he felt with anticipation of close combat. He came to a tent just across from his pavilion, and suddenly deciding that this was the perfect spot, donned his helmet and crouched down at the side. The movement of his quickened blood as he crouched still and waiting created a low and rhythmic thrushing sound in his ears. He did not have to wait more than a moment before the figure in black rounded the side of the pavilion, looked quickly to be sure he wasn't spotted, then slipped soundlessly inside. Uther, incongruously, felt tickled. The old man was right. 
He must have done something to earn the favor of this man, and as Uther stood to his full height, he felt the power of having great advantage. He thought of taking his helmet down, for he wanted Hanks to know at once who it was, but the old man had warned him to be defended, so he'd have to forego that satisfaction. Uther stood, legs planted far apart, a few feet just in front of his own pavilion, and he waited. He heard rustling inside, objects falling over, then a silence, and in his mind's eye he saw the assassin inside, realizing that the one he'd come to kill wasn't there, that his plan was foiled, and that he was now stuck in the very center of the enemy camp. It almost made Uther laugh, but not as much as when, a moment later, he saw the sight of Hank's head, emerging from his pavilion, then stopping, eyes widening and pallor fading to white, as he beheld the massive knight standing before him. "'Hangst,' said Uther, although he'd only seen him at a distance on the battlefield. He made a welcoming gesture with his hands, one swinging the long blade of his dagger. "'How good of you to visit!' The Saxon stood still as a cobra, eyes fixed on the helmet of the knight opposite him. His reddened eyes made the light blue air at the center shine brighter, the colors more vivid as the blood drained from his face. His eyes darted left, then right, but there was nowhere he could go. To retreat into the pavilion, slid it, and run out the back, but Uther would sound the alarm and he'd be overcome. His face became shiny as a layer of sweat emerged, and strange lumps appeared in his face as he set his jaw, the knowledge that his plan had collapsed crushing in on him with horrible force. Now the wild thoughts came. Throw a lamp at the knight? Trip him and try to run? Or steal a horse? The knight stood simply watching as all of these thoughts rushed through the Saxon's mind. But even then, Hanks knew there now could be no outcome but combat. He had taken the risk to get into the camp unnoticed, and it would have been brilliantly cunning if it had worked out, but now it left him alone in a deadly position. His eyes steadily watching his opponent, Hanks emerged fully from the tent. His eyes were fierce, but Uther could see his wrinkled hands shaking. He was older than Uther had thought, just under sixty, he imagined, with a tight and lithe body, all of which made him fearsome and venerable, but also a bit desperate and slightly pathetic. Oh, Uther laughed, and his hand came up to cover his mouth as he saw that Hanks was not wearing armor. The Saxon's face grimly withstood the humiliation as his opponent gloated over his dawning great fortune. Uther thought quickly on what might be the most satisfying insult to taunt the invader with, and finally said, Look at you, slipping nearly naked into my pavilion. The Saxon bared his teeth. I brought a gift, he said, and raised his dagger. Uther also saw one tucked into his belt. Hanks crouched in place and put on his most fearsome face. Uther didn't flinch. A rather wee gift, he said. Is it not? Hanks leapt. His knife point made a dull thud as it hid the rings of the knight's hauberk. Uther watched the blade stop directly above his chest, unable to go further, and while that happened, his arm came forward and pushed the dagger into Hank's stomach. At first feeling of it, the Saxon leapt back, and as he retreated, Uther wrenched his wrist around in a tight circle, causing the sharp blade to arc within Hank's guts. The invader gasped. He stepped back, mouth hanging open as the blade slipped out of him. The quiet, rain-like sound of blood hitting the grass and fallen leaves was heard. He backed away silently, the hand covering his stomach now wet and red as Uther stepped forward, matching him step for step. Hanks' eyes searched side to side frantically, looking for any means of escape. He once more glanced at the advancing knight, and a small moan of unexpectedly high-pitched issued from him. "'Did you come here, Hanks?' said Uther, voice now low and steady. 
because you wanted to be sure to be killed by me? The Saxon's lips curled up over his teeth in hatred. His eyes traveled all over the advancing knight's body, looking for anywhere he could strike with his knife, but it would mean getting close enough to do it without being wounded yet again. A sharp pain deep within him made him wince, and a wave of dizziness and nausea washed over him. He was losing blood. With this thought, he gripped the handle of his blade in clenched fist and threw himself forward. There was no time for strategy, nor did he have the energy for anything but ruthless attack. He slashed the air left as Uther stepped back, then slashed right. Uther simply stepped to the side, but as Hank stumbled past, he turned his blade within his hands and directed a jab back toward Uther's abdomen. It felt like a punch. The blade stopped entirely by his armor. Uther barely felt it, but with a strange calmness and clarity of mind, he saw Hank's bent-over body passing by him, examined it for weakness, and was able to hook his dagger under the far side of the Saxon's throat, letting the man's forward movement sink it into the flesh as Uther pulled it back toward him. Hank's continued by, body propelled by the momentum of his leap, but his head snapped back, blue eyes shining livid as his hand came up to touch his neck. His fingertips were met with the gentle touch of a spurt of blood. His daring plan had failed. His glorious military career and dreams of ruling the Saxon state of Britain would come to an abrupt end there in this encampment. After his bold assault, he had to admit himself that now, while he knew his plan was audacious and had a good chance of failure, he'd never actually considered that it would fail. His mouth came open and his face took on a child's open expression of frustration, knowing full well that this new wound meant he would never be leaving that camp. Off balance and not looking where he was going, Hanks tripped and fell forward, landing roughly on his face and shoulder. Uther's blade hung downward and swung left and right at the end of his fingers, a drop of blood flying off with each arc. He moved slowly and with patience, his mind suffused with the strange calm of combat and the certain knowledge that his enemy had been destroyed. Hanks pulled his face up out of the dirt and lifted himself half up with a forearm, making a high-pitched strangled groan that sounded rather like a pig. He looked back, seeing Uther following close behind him, regarding him with an expression of curiosity, and at once turned his eyes down before a desperate gasp, but whiny like a sob issued from him. Within a few short moments, he had transformed from stealthy warlord to wounded animal, and the cruelty of his situation, plus the sadistic gloating of Uther just behind him, was too awful to bear. Not to mention that his limbs were no longer able to support him as waves of lightheadedness swept through his brain, and a metallic taste spread throughout his mouth. He fell forward once more onto his face, rolling his eyes downward where he saw Uther crouch to take a seat on a stone behind him. Don't, Hanks said, but had to swallow to contain the blood that filled his mouth. He was so tired. It cost such great effort to speak. He watched as Uther wiped the end of his blade across his leg, then flicked the weapon downwards, sending it to stick upward out of the ground at his feet. The large knight leaned forward, placing an elbow on his knee and resting his head in his hand, as his eyes stayed steadily trained on the weakening man before him. Don't just watch me die, said Hanks through ragged breaths. Uther shrugged. Why not? That's it for today. Join us next week as the story continues. If you get tired of listening over the course of several weeks, the full ebook and paperback of this novel is available over at Amazon and most other online booksellers. The full audiobook will be available, and it might be by the time you listen to this, over at Audible, where you can also find the first book. 
Just search for the Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N, or Scott Tellick, T-E-L-E-K. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit the Swithin website by searching the same terms. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe or leave a comment or what have you or whatever you want to do, and we will see you next week. Thanks.